This is Milestones. I'm Angelica Beener. I'm so excited to bring this podcast to WBGO Studios and welcome the WBGO family to the show. Here we take deep dives into milestone moments in music and culture during landmark years. On today's episode, I am joined by critically acclaimed trumpeter and newly published author, Jeremy Pelt. Together, we discuss the 1971 release of Freddie Hubbard's Straight Life in celebration of its 50th anniversary. Join us as we get into the state of jazz at the top of the 1970s and how Hubbard's underexplored yet highly influential release would help shape things to come for trumpeters, for the music, and the culture. I hope you enjoy. I'm really thrilled about my guest for this episode. For nearly two decades, he has been a consistently inspiring voice in jazz. He is a dynamic trumpeter whose virtuosity and breadth of concept and style have earned him high praise from critics and fans alike. He is a five-time Downbeat Magazine Critics Poll winner, and he has been described by the New York Times as a fierce talent. Jazz Times calls him a technical marvel. He has released nearly 20 albums as a leader thus far, each identified by his signature balance of intensity and sensitivity, his lyrical genius, and his vast songwriting prowess. His brand new release, Griot, this is important on the high note label, is an homage like no other and one of his most adventurous and meaningful albums to date as he muses on the stories personally told to him by some of the most profound jazz musicians among us. He has also recently added published author to his resume with his brand new book and companion to the album titled Griot, Exploring the Lives of Jazz's Great Storytellers, which includes a series of interviews with a spectrum of jazz luminaries and unsung giants of jazz. He is Jeremy Pelt. Jeremy, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. Yes, I'm I'm equally thrilled to have you. And I just want to say that, and this is no joke because you can't make this stuff up, but five minutes before we began, did I not get my book in the mail? <laughs> <laughs> nice, nice. It looks great. Doesn't it? You can absolutely get the hardcover and softcover versions of Griot as well as pick up the physical CD, but Griot is available everywhere that you can buy music, everywhere that you can stream music, just go check it out. Please. Yeah. So how does that feel? Congratulations to you. It feels great. You know, I, I, for many years, I've, I've always, it never gets, first of all, it never gets old, but for many years, I've always felt great around the time that my, my CDs have been released and, and, and just, getting the buzz happening. So that's always great. But then to add on top of that, having the book out there and to now, because now it's starting to get into people's hands after I've sent it out and everything. Now it's to, to hear the kind of uh, praise come back to me and, and, and people are like, man, I'm so glad you did this. And this is great. That starts to, to really mean something, you know, and, wow. and it, it, it's just a testament to the hard work and, to see that it's appreciated is is a wonderful thing, and I'm also thankful for you to write and to forward to it. 
So I mean, it's 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 a great thing, and uh, I'm I'm just looking forward to doing. I'm still doing interviews, so I mean, there's going to be more volumes, which is amazing. And yes, um, I will humbly add that it was a deep honor to write the foreword for Jeremy's book Grio. So um, I'm just so excited for the project. Um, certainly invested in it in my own way, but just also really excited for you to bring this to fruition. It's such an important text and and an important work for years to come. You can already sort of wrap your head around the gravity of what this is going to be for many, many years to come. Um, But we are here to also discuss uh, an album that is celebrating a milestone this year. In fact, January of this year made 50 years for the Freddie Hubbard album, Straight Life. And I just think this is such a great album to unpack with you. Um, Such a prolific uh, instrumentalist in your own right. Uh, Someone who dives deep into the music, you know, so I'm, I'm honored to talk to you about this album. So tell me what comes to you when you think about this album. What comes to me is, is interesting. It's my time in, at Berkeley in Boston, there was this uh, record store. I'm not sure if it's still there. It's called Looney Tunes. And for a short while, and I have to get back to it, it's almost embarrassing to say now because LPs are now in, in 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 vogue now again. But um for a short time I did actually have a, a record player when I was in Boston. And so I used to go and get go record hunting and, and getting things. And of course I had been in the Freddie Hubbard for a long time. And I was essentially at that point really into his blue note output, which would be the Freddie, you know, early Freddie. And then I started getting into uh the cti period of the atlantic actually i went into cti before atlantic even though atlantic was before cti and i started to you know get all these records and then i remember going through the bins and seeing straight life and i'd never heard of it and what struck me was you turn it over and it's just three songs (laughs) so that that's the first thing that struck me i was like three songs on here not that I felt like I was going to get ripped off or anything like that. It, I just thought it was, it was, it, it was like, that was the first thing that stuck out in my mind was that it's just three songs. And I looked at the picture and of course you see, I mean, it's a the all-star cast of, of musicians on there. So with, even if it was a bunch of Joe Schmoes and Freddie Hubbard, I would have gotten it. So that's it. But so the deal would have been sealed e- either way, but this just put the extras on top of it especially with George Benson on there, who who was definitely ensconced in the CTI realm, but I felt like it was still kind of a meeting of, of because Freddie had already been used to playing with Joe Henderson and, and, and Ron Carter and Herbie and everybody and Jackie Jeanette. But now you're adding that guitar element to it uh, with George Benson. And I was just like, man, this is this killing, you know? And I just knew it was killing before I heard it. I didn't know what to expect, right? And so when I got home and I put it on and, you know, you just hear, I said, okay. And then just the sound of everybody coming in 
there's only a couple of of CDs, CDs, a couple of recordings where a vibe like that has 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 really you know caught me. You know, mm-hmm. like so he comes in, and they already into it. And the next time I've ever heard something that that reminds me of that, that came close to that, was what thirty years later when, or yeah, like twenty some odd years later, almost thirty years later, when Roy did it, you know, with uh, uh, of Kindred Souls, you know, when they came in. That's the same feeling I got. It coalesces from the beginning. I was like, man, the vibe is already set. The thing about it is that the the two long playing songs are essentially they're all the same key. <laughs> so that's number one. It's they're like one long that. vamp. Exactly, yeah, just one <laughs> long vamp. Mr. Clean and you have straight straight life. They're both the same uh, key, different tempos, which make all the difference in the world. But they're both the same key. But they was they were able to do so much, uh, you know, with it. I just like the 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 the, the moods of it. You know what yeah. I mean? Yeah. It, it's, it's just a vibe straight off. Straight off. First of all, yes. When you were describing the way it comes in, oh my gosh, it's so very very funky. So as you said, it's these veteran musicians who are all sort of going on this trajectory of this sort of new sound like you said like it's 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 not the blue note ears anymore and i want to talk to you about that too because there's this time between where he's ending his blue note period and going into the cti period uh what do those atlantic records cue us in to in terms of where freddie is going by the time we get to 1970 when he releases uh, Red Clay. I think the Atlantic records, which are often overlooked, was probably his last uh, uh, his last period of doing uh, of, of writing for a bigger kind of ensemble experiments that that you know that it, it probably came to an end as far as I, I think. Um, in that Atlantic period, so there was a lot of writing going on in the in the six early sixties, and it took us through Bluno period. By the time the Atlantic period, that was actually I feel like his most productive period in terms of writing. Wow, of arranging and orchestrating things because I mean, even from that point, when when you think about Freddie doing the Blue Note, and he's writing, he's always writing songs. You know, when he was with Art Blake and he, he wrote what were hits. You know, but I think that the Atlantic period and those those records, especially High Blues Pressure, the Black Angel, you know, these 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 records kind of represented his his artistry, um, his compositional artistry on on full effect. Mm. By the time that he got to CTI, you know, he started to really rely on like the Don Sebeskis to really do fill out all the arrangements. And then that was kind of like his foray into a more commercial sound. But, and, and when I do say commercial sound, I don't mean it in a negative connotation. Um, I think, you know, especially everybody that you mentioned on that record was kind of in the, in, in the uh, uh, search for 
you know, the same thing, which is to really be more exposed. You know, I mean, because there's a reason for all that when you, I mean, we're not talking about Miles right now, but I mean, when you think about Miles, him getting, he was, he was dark for a second because he was in this like throes of like, what should I do? And then all of a sudden people like, you know, Herbie was saying, well, yeah, let me, let me try this. And then, you know, so all his sidemen were starting to get with, with, with the new sound. And he said, oh, hell no. And I've talked, I know this from talking to Freddie extensively, Freddie was, idolized Miles. So he was going to do anything that put him in, you know, in in a com- competitive atmosphere with Miles, and um, and so that was pretty much the sound of what was happening then. So nobody was really at that point uh, invested in. I mean, they were still swinging on CTI records, but nobody was uh, really invested in trying to recapture the sounds that they had done even five years prior. So they wanted to really bring that in, especially because, and this is another important thing, is that everybody was hanging out with everybody. So it wasn't, you know, as nowadays, and now it's actually what's what's funny about nowadays, which is cool, is that people amongst in, in the genres are starting to break down the the names. They're not, they're, you know, they're not saying I'm not going to hang out with you because you're a jazz artist. Everybody's just really just trying to just create. And that's mm-hmm. what happened back then. So that's why you're going to see Herbie Hancock if you turn over songs in the key of life. Because they were hanging out. <laughs> you know, Hub was hanging out with all these cats. You exactly. know, Glenn Campbell to, 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 to everybody. So when I mention, when I say something like they were going for a commercial sound, what I mean by that is that they were, they were just chilling with their their peers that were doing music too that wasn't necessarily coming from you know where they came from but now they're in this place and it's like okay yeah let me go ahead and incorporate that you know let's get that feel because at the end of the day black music is a groove it's a groove so you could talk about swing and you could talk about swing and 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 a pocket groove from Earth, Wind and Fire or Ohio players or anybody in the same breath. And it's the same thing. That's you know? right. So, That's right. So, therefore, so when you listen to Straight Life, compositionally speaking, it's, it's not what Freddie was doing in the Atlantic period, but he's still very much in the groove and keeping up with what is going on around him and, and, and also who he's hanging out with and who everybody else is checking out. Those are such dynamic points. Wow. I feel like what those artists were able to do is exactly what you said, which was to say, this is Black music, and this is Black music, and this is Black music. They all come together. Freddie Hubbard covers Stevie, uh, Stevie Wonder at some point. Um, Like you said, Herbie and Uh, Stevie. Exactly. Does a fantastic version of of Too High, I think in 75. And Black Maybe. Which oh, I don't know that version of Herbie it's, does Black Maybe. No, no, no. Freddie does Black Maybe. I mean, um, Freddie. That's what I meant to say. Really? He does it on the same record. It's, it's on a record called High Energy. Yeah, 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 yeah. I didn't realize he did Black Maybe on that yeah. album. Got it. Okay, I'm on it. So yeah, like you said, it was it was proximity. It was the social dynamic that also mm. played into how these records sounded. 
so to talk about uh, that first track that you were that you were uh, describing so beautifully up in the top of our conversation, we thought my favorite things was long, you know, at 1346 or something. I mean, Straight Life is almost 18 minutes long. And uh, and Freddie, it's a Freddie composition. Mm-hmm. And then we have Mr. Clean, which is a Weldon Ravine composition and Weldon, who is just such an unsung sort of progenitor of what I would call jazz rock, soul jazz, jazz funk, whatever that hybrid is. Um, And then, so he's got a tune that he writes, a tune that Weldon writes, and then he's got a a standard. Here's that rainy day. Here's that rainy day on, and and is is he on flugelhorn on that that tune? Yeah. Okay. That is, and I know we're jumping around a bit, but, that version of Here's That Rainy Day, that's probably one of the prettiest things I've ever heard in my life. You know, so one of the things just to to, to uh, kind of go back to what you said just a little bit, when we talk about CTI records, another thing yeah. that uh, probably doesn't get as much recognition, it, it doesn't get as much recognition for, is the fact that that label... And those records actually had a sound to it. You know what I mean? Um, Much like Blue Note had a sound to it, CTI records had a particular sound to it. Yeah. And that could be traced over a lot of different people's records. You could listen to to Milt Jackson's record and it sounds like, you know, uh, you know, I mean, they're doing people make the world go around on that, right? Then they're also, then you listen to, you know, Billy Cobb you know, all these different people. So it had a sound to it. Um, now, going back to, now now bringing us back up to what we were talking about, the reason why I mentioned that is because the sound is so, it captures Freddie so well. You know, and this was done at Rudy's too. And Rudy, you know, Rudy gets a lot of credit as well because he he knew how to capture people's sounds. Um and he caught Freddie's sound, and it was the most, and at, like you said, it was the most beautiful version. I listened to that, and I'm just like, first of all, Freddie loved playing his ballads, you know? And so, and you could tell right then and there. And and I almost feel like, even though I don't know, so I'm not going to, I'm not going to claim that they did, but I always, I, for some reason, I feel like that was like the first take. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. I, I, it just, you know, because Freddie don't count nothing off. He never, I mean, he counts it off in, in his way. You know, but he's not gonna count off a ballad. So, and, and George is there with him. You know what I mean? And he's just—I mean, it just flows so beautifully. And you know, and 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 Ron just coming in there on that second hey, man. But the stuff that Hub was playing on there, man. I was listening to it in the car today, getting ready for this interview. I'm listening to. It, I'm just like, oh lord. I was. Like, okay. <laughs> okay. All right, I ain't messing with you. <laughs> right. I mean, it is just so thoughtful and pretty and tasty. And it just it's it Freddie made an art out of playing the flugelhorn in a way that I mean, because he wasn't the first one. I mean, there the two trumpet players, main trumpet players. Um, I mean, you could argue for three if you if you want to include Chuck Mangione in there, but I'll go further back and i'll say the two real main trumpet players that really made an art and a thing out of playing the flugelhorn that's clark terry and then that's freddie hubbard right um a lot of other cats did it i mean you know 
their sounds weren't as discernible between the trumpet and the flugelhorn as Freddie and 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 Clark. So it took me years. I don't. I think I might have had Miles Davis uh, plus nineteen and Gil Evans for twenty years before I realized that he was playing flugel on half of that record, most of that record. Because Miles' sound on the flugel sounds just like it did on the trumpet. You know what I mean? Right. And so, and and then of course, you know, Lee Morgan played played some flugelhorn. But again, and I and I, I remember playing Lee's flugelhorn. It felt great. But it didn't. He, he I mean, of course, you know, full marks for musicianship, and it's Lee Morgan. So of course, a genius and everything. But. I think that Freddie made more of a mark, Freddie and, and Clark made more of a mark and a distinction between the two voices, um, yes. trumpet and flugelhorn. Uh-huh. And the way that the way that you would approach it um, is, 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 I mean, the way that you do that rather is, is kind of in the approach to how you're gonna do it. So if you listen to Freddie playing a ballad on trumpet um, past the 60s, I'd say, <laughs> You know, so not 1962, Freddie playing Skylark, which is beautiful, sure. but playing the freedom that he has when he's playing the flugelhorn is what's the distinction, you know, and, 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 and it's an important distinction to make because I played flugelhorn for many years and I and I got good at it, too. Yeah. But I was like, you know, I for me personally, I wanted to be able to just have one horn because I just hate carrying all these instruments and whatnot. So I'm just gonna make what I and, and and do what I want to do on this horn, and that works for me. But I, I do recognize the balance. You know, the last person again, I keep going back to him, but for good reason. That was able to have that same kind of balance as Roy. Absolutely. But you know, when you get that fuller horn, and and you play, you there's a whole, there's a different approach to how you're gonna play something. You're not playing as hard. So when you hear Hub on that flugelhorn, because Hub played hard, Hub used to call me, talk about, yeah, man, don't be playing no four, 10 courses, 40 courses on no song like I did. You know, he used to tell me all that <laughs> stuff. But, but the other thing is, when he got to that flugelhorn, he wasn't playing as hard. He wasn't playing as hard, and you could hear it. It's on full display when you hear that, here's that rainy day. There's a freedom there. You know, yeah, but uh, I, can't, I, I keep going back to that line because that's such a genius line. This is the way that he's approaching it. And the fluidity is, is on a full display. Absolutely. And I think it's so important that you bring that up because when you think of Freddie Hubbard, you do think of this bravado, you think of this, you know, full force, you think of velocity, you think of volume, and just a, a freight train really co- coming at you when, you when you think about Freddie. But he also had a deep sensitivity in his playing. And, I, and this tune, because as you brought up in the beginning, it's only three tunes on this record. Uh, right. One of them is about 18 minutes long. And incidentally, you know, because there are some songs that are just like after a while, it's like, OK, how many times are we going to play this groove, you know, over and over and over again before <laughs> I'm, I'm tired of it. But in the in a similar vein of like James Brown or something like you just don't get tired of it at all. 
Yeah. And the way Freddie, first of all, the way Freddie builds his solo on Straight Life, the tune itself is incredible. Then Mr. Clean, which bringing him up again, our dear brother, Roy Hargrove, actually covers this tune on Ear Food, which came out in 2008. And that song is about 15 minutes or something around there. And then here's that rainy day is almost like a, a benediction. It's like a prayer. Relief. It's a relief. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. So it's it's brilliantly laid out because you're on fire. You're on fire yeah. for like 30 good minutes. You know, well, you, the thing that sticks out to me, you know, as I was gathering my thoughts, um, listening to the record yet again this morning, was something that you you pointed out, and and let's talk about it. You're talking about James Brown and the fact that you know they'll be sitting over there on that one groove. Like I listen to James Brown live with the Apollo, and they just they in that groove for like 20 minutes, and he going around talking. Hey, basically, you gonna do this? Say, say, give me the eye, you know. And they just, <laughs> but you know, the thing about that is that you have to play with people that understand the role of the groove and don't mind staying in the groove. Mm. That's the thing. That's what makes it. So when I listen to Mr. Clean, now let's go to Mr. Clean, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. Friday ain't doing nothing but be doom doom. Be doom doom. That's it. And that's it, it's still grooving. And then, and, and, and we didn't talk about, because I'm, I'm, I'm skipping on names, uh, and but you can look it up too. The, whoever's on percussion, I don't know if it's Big Black or not, but there's uh, whoever's on percussion, I, I can't re- recall who's on, but they're laying it down in such a profound way that I don't get tired of listening to that. And I just remember, I remarked at the beginning of this, that it's two songs in the same key, right? You know, so that's the that's the, the jazz nerd song of me saying, okay, there's no other changes. But you know, I learned a long time ago because I met I'll tell you, one of my first gigs when I moved to town was with a band called the Scatterlights. Mm-hmm. It's a ska band. And you know, and 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 me moving to town, I was this young cat that really was trying to get in play and some changes and do all that. So I had no idea what ska was. All I knew was that it was a gig and that I could not have to do a day job. So I did this band. And mind you, I started at the top in terms of that world because Sky, they were the ones that started Sky. <laughs> Bob Marley used to sing with them when he was a kid. You know really? what I mean? So okay. I'm like, well, I don't know, but I didn't know that. The 21-year-old Jeremy didn't know that. Right. So but and I had the nerve. <laughs> The actual the the plum nerve to come out of my mouth one time, and these you know, these these cats are like the the Jimmy Heaths and 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 you know of that of that realm. You know what I mean? And you know they're talking. We're on this tour bus, and he's telling me how. When I say he, I'm talking about the bass player who's now the leader of the band. His name was uh, Lloyd Brevet. And at that time, he was like 60-some-odd years. They're all Jamaican. They're all very surly. They all had their own weed. You know, they're all very <laughs> highly argumentative. And, and I'm there, with, and I didn't do nothing. Right? I was just sitting over there like, okay, I'm inhaling all this. But I remember he was saying, he, he would always say this to me, and it was funny. 
even when we were on the stage playing, he would be like, you must stick with the progression. You must stick with the progression, man. Bah, 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 bah. You know, that's, I'm sorry. I am apologize already for my, my, my Jamaican. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm just, it, I just sticks in my head because he's right. yelling at me, but it looks like he's egging me on to the audience because the music's so damn loud. Anyhow, right. they don't know that he's actually. So he's like, yeah, stick with and I'm like, what are you talking about? Stick with the progression. It's just F. We're playing a groove, a sky groove in F. And I had the nerve on the, on the tour bus to say, it's not like we're playing giant steps. What are you talking about? I had never heard so much patois in my life. Man, this cat lit me up. <laughs> right? But that, that, that left a lasting lesson on how, you know, you approach even the, the, the things that seem to you to be the most simple, you know, the most simple things. Come so on. when you listen to Queen, and it's just that one chord into that one groove, the concentration that goes into that and staying there should be celebrated. And, and they're not letting up on the groove to be doing those stupid other stuff and, okay, let's, let's do this in, in, in 1980, and let's go into this key. No, they like right here, doom, doom, cat. Who didn't, you know, and then, uh, and and also the doubling of the of the guitar with with the bass, you know, do 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 it just, it's just stink all, all day long. And I think yeah. part of uh, that, that, first of all, that's such a great lesson that you learned in that ska band. And I, I, and, you know, admittedly, I was the same way, you know, I, a lot of times I would say, you know, well, I don't particularly like uh, a lot of reggae because it does, you know, and, and I liked Marley particularly because his tunes had some changes, you know, but when we talk about groove and and just rhythm, it's pretty much what it is. And like you said, it takes a different type of discipline and commitment to the song. And I think the interesting thing is that the reward that comes out of those kind of songs, because after a while they start to feel like a mantra Mm -hmm. in that way. Um, it comes right. out in, in really rewarding ways in in the music, and, yeah. and it's also, you know, the the groove is so insistent when you listen to it that you don't even realize that Jack Dijonette and again, I'm sorry, I'm blanking on the percussionist name, but they're they're turning that knob, so the intensity is going up. The groove is still there. You know what I mean? It's like you know, I used to tell cats. You know, younger cats about checking out Art Blakey, and Art Blakey used to do this thing before he was going to explode, and it would be something like he would be swinging, and you and he was he was setting the tone for you. So it would be you know, and I mean, so you it's like it's it's literally like a ticking time bomb, right? So you you know. And that's what it is. So you don't really, you, you don't realize, a lot of cats don't realize that they're self-editing and, and, and getting you prepared for all that's happening 
while still maintaining that groove. They're in charge. Wow. They're, they're, they're handling the dynamics in that sense. Mm. Wow. Yeah, absolutely. Now I got to listen to a bunch of Blakey records with that in mind. <laughs> so true. Richie Landrum on Richie. percussion. That was going to drive me and you crazy. So yeah. I had to go ahead. And- <laughs> Wherever you are, I'm sorry, you know, because that, that percussion is a very important part of that record as well. Oh, man. Yeah. I mean, especially like it, the drive of of okay. straight life. I mean, it's yeah. oh, and you can just hear. I mean, when everybody comes in, <laughs> the father's already. It's not even like okay, let's warm up and get it. No, it's we already in it. <laughs> exactly. And and you know what? And it's it's funny you say that because when you were talking about all the people who were hanging out and socializing and and across genres, this is also sort of the rise of the sort of Afro-Latin music and Brazilian music coming into the fore and Brazilian jazz and Javon and all of these artists. So that cross-pollinization is also heard it's all in there. on this. Everything is on this record. And so I have two, two questions. Was where, where does Bitches Brew fit in in the spectrum to you? Is it that, because this, this kind of stuff was percolating well before Bitches Brew, but the significance of the record seems to have allowed for like if you have a the, the mild stamp of artistic approval so to speak to go in this direction and it seems like the floodgates were open do i have that right or how do you see that i feel like and and this is you know off the top of my head i i i feel like part of what bitches brew brought to the table was other artists realizing that they could really just let the the the, the machines roll for an indeterminate amount of time. You know what I mean? So before then, these songs were a lot shorter. And before we even talked about Bitches Brew, we had to really start talking about In a Silent Way. You know, right. and, and and a lot of, and, and you know, Miles, like everybody else, was listening to the Jimi Hendrix, uh, Carlos Santana, and getting all of it from there. And those records, you know, or those live performances even were, were lasting, you know, in a, lot, a pretty lengthy, you know, in terms of songs. Yes. Um, so I think that that's more the father of, of, of what started to happen. Um, you know, I think what Miles allowed, which I think, which is a beautiful difference um, is that, Miles wanted it, it, those that that period was also it, it encompassed a lot, it encompassed groove and funk, but it also really had a hold on some avant garde stuff too. Whereas when you listen to like like Straight Life and all these records that that came after that, they were just purely about the funk and the groove, you know. Miles actually wanted to be that way, but he was smart enough to let cats go ahead and do what they want to do in order to create a bigger, a bigger picture, a, a, di- a more diverse picture of what could happen within a frame of a song. But whenever you listen to like Bitches Brew Live, 
you, Miles was always beholden to the funk. He wanted the groove, right? Yes. Then when he started playing, then Wayne came in and then it's, it's everywhere. Tick Korea, it went everywhere. Keith Jarrett went everywhere. <laughs> then when Miles was ready to bring it in, he come back in with that sound of his and then they would get right back to grooving again because that's what he that's what he wanted. But I, 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 I think there was an influence, but I think more so the influence was in terms of of, of letting it develop in a, in a longer type of way um, on mm-hmm. on record more so than than the feel uh, and, uh, and the music itself because I, again it's like we were talking about a lot of that was already starting to take shape before, I mean Cannonball was already starting to do you know deal with with the the world of certain roads before Miles yes. you know what I mean yes. so a lot of that was already starting to take place and Miles was actually you know the what not the last but i mean he was actually behind all that and be like mm, okay i'm gonna do it but i'm gonna do it my way and still be miles you know and yes. that's what happened because he was already he already had the name you know what i mean right so, i yeah. feel like in many ways it was probably exactly like that cachet and that sort of stamp but i think you brought up some really important names that i'm so glad that are being mentioned in this episode to bring this into context. Jimi Hendrix, that is an indispensable name when we're having this conversation. And Cannonball Adderley, 100%. So thank you for bringing their names into the fore in this conversation. Another artist I I feel like we could talk about in this conversation is Donald Byrd. Because, I mean, (laughs) yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, what he was... mm -hmm, No, go ahead. With Donald... See, now, when you talk about smart commercial music. Yes. And you know, because you read the book that we that that, that I put out. Listen to what how Larry Willis talks about. Yeah, exactly. About commercial music of, of the period that when he was in Blood, Sweat and Tears and what he appreciated about that music. And when I the things that I learned about that from Larry was that he, he always appreciated well-constructed songs. Um, and he doesn't really get the kind of props he does because if you just focus on the trumpet aspect of his playing, which he was a visionary there too. He was thinking about things mathematically and he encouraged Herbie to do the same thing. That's where Herbie got a lot of it from because they were roommates, you know? So he brought Herbie into all that. But, you know, he was saying, okay, I want to go ahead and produce these singers out of Howard. And then all of a sudden you got the Blackbird. So that created the sound right there with Lawrence Mizell. That's so, right. So, you know, he was he was already thinking on those terms and even making it more commercial to be, to, to, to really stand right there with the staple singers, right there with, the, you know, with, with Curtis Mayfield, with all of the, the popular Black singers of that period. Absolutely. You know? Donald Byrd and Freddie Hubbard were sort of going in the same direction at this time, but Donald Byrd, it seems like he had more success within that realm. And I feel like Freddie at a certain point would even get a little hammered for uh, these records. Like they don't, they are not uh, like, I remember a long time ago, we were talking about um, what's the record. Uh, Skagley. Skagley, exactly. Now, I had that record in my house growing mm-hmm. up. I remember that cover very well, but I feel like from a critical perspective, uh, Donald Byrd had a lot more success, it feels like, or, or, and he was even going even further into like 
like you were talking about, because the singers and stuff, even R&B, you could even classify it as, you know, R&B and and skate rink joints and and all that kind of stuff. He's trying to to capture the people that still wanted some voices on acetate. Okay, You know what I mean? He He wanted that audience. There was a black audience for what Freddie and Herbie and everybody was. And well, not, I'm not even put Herbie in that. Herbie wanted the same damn thing, which is why he went into disco <laughs> and started singing on his records, right? But Hub was very beholden to, to to still playing because Hub, at the end of the day, even though he believed in those projects that he was putting out, Hub really wanted to always just be playing, and that and he knew what he was great at. And he always wanted to be playing, and and he so he was going to do what he wanted to do in terms of getting his sound out there. Whereas Bert, Donald, he you know he went through a bout of uh, of um, Bell's palsy, so his playing wasn't as strong as it was in in the fifties and in the early sixties. So he couldn't really uphold that same kind of playing that he was doing decades early but he still had the mind for it we all know i mean well we should all know i know you know but i mean donald bird got what like two phds he's a pilot i mean this was the smartest he's probably one of the smartest men in jazz (laughs) okay so he you know he had a, a vision for what you know he could do that 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 would take him away you know temporarily away from the trumpet but still be placed in music and 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 really still keeping a black audience wow. during a time where especially in the 70s jazz was starting to you know really go by the wayside then all of a sudden you starting to have loft scenes right cuz 70s was a lost period there was a lot of st- great stuff that was happening but it didn't really start to 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 head more towards straight ahead until Woody Shaw got his band together that's right you know and then that's when people started to really get into it. And then, and even Woody didn't get a chance to really, really exploit and enjoy that fame because then he got dropped for Witten. And then he got very, very hurt by that, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but for that, but everything that was happening prior to that point, you know, jazz was going through this lost period. But but what what Donald wanted to do was still keep that that essential Black audience you know, and, 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 and put out products that is still serving the community and serving the music. Exactly. Yeah. And so where in your mind does straight life fit in two questions? Where does straight life specifically fit in the sort of the the canon of Freddie's work within the seventies, right? Because we've got red clay, which just that's a whole nother conversation. It's such a, a brilliant album across any genre of Black music. And then the, I believe the, the chronology is Straight Life comes after that. And then I think First Light is after Straight Life. Um, I know they came out so close to each other that I'm not sure if it's flip-flopped or whatever, but I definitely feel like of his CTI records, Red Clay... And First Light seemed to have get more attention than Straight Life, but Straight Life is is such a gem of an of an album for all the reasons that we've 
tried to touch on in this little bit of time. Think about it like this, particularly when you say to the trumpet. Um, from whence he came, and the same could be said for a lot of, 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 not a lot, no, I shouldn't say a lot, a few of the trumpet players, Miles being one of them. But when you think about the production of how he started, um, I mean, I think his first record might have been with the Montgomery Brothers back when he was still in Indiana. And then he did a few records for Riverside. So they were always studio productions. Um, but one of the things that a lot of those artists didn't realize or didn't get a chance to realize, it's not that they didn't have dreams of it, but they didn't, they never got a chance to realize is the concept of a huge budget. So when you think about it on a term, like look at, you know, when, 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 when Frank Sinatra went to, to Capitol Records and then had these big lush, you know, recordings and everything. And he's coming from, I'm blanking on the label before that, but the productions only got bigger and bigger as he got bigger and bigger. And so they were much more produced. So when you come from the, uh, the a, a relatively smaller production, and that doesn't necessarily that has nothing, no bearing on the the quality of music that was created. Obviously, sure. right? I mean, he created some true gems, but you know, okay. So with Rivers Prestige, for for instance, they a single session would be three hours in the studio and you cut it and that was it, you know? And uh, rehearsal was probably on you. Blue Note was the hybrid. Blue Note said, okay, we're going to do a date, but we're going to give you a week. That's your production time. You still get that four-hour studio session, but we want you to rehearse and we're paying for the rehearsals and all this leading up to that, mm-hmm. right? And but and it, it culminates in that small out a slot of time right which is inconceivable now to this generation which i'm in part of now because we're all used to like you know seven hours eight hours in studio whereas those days even though arguably there are less songs that are recorded now than on rec- uh, recordings now but um so you that there's that and then by the time cti came around then now he's experiencing another level of 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 notoriety number one and of of budget wow and then going forward going forward from cti to columbia now you're like in it now you're doing records like you're a pop star and that's 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 a main difference in how i'm not sure sure how that ties into his trumpet playing because you know uh, he was Freddie in general was was always somebody that was uh, to a certain point <laughs> had a regimented kind of uh, uh, practice, and so he expected a certain thing from his own playing, and he kept up with that. So I don't know that any kind of record label would have would have interfered with with his mindset on 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 creating a, a you know near damn near perfect you know way of playing right but in terms of the the bigger picture of music and where his head went in terms of production 
you know, once you get with a Columbia and I mean, their budgets, I mean, I remember when, when uh, Eddie, I was talking to Dr. Henderson and he wasn't nowhere near as big as Freddie Hubbard was. And when he came out with Sunburst, he was talking about his budgets were like a hundred thousand. What? <laughs> it's inconceivable. He was just like, what? You know what I mean? Because that, that don't exist now. No, you know, exactly. Instrumentalist, you know, so. You're lucky if you get a $10,000 budget for the life yeah. of your project. Exactly. So, you know, that's, but that's the type of things that they were, uh, money that they were dealing with, that they were, the, that they were putting in these projects. And so once you have that and you have this kind of budget, like, okay, now let's bring in the swings, let's bring in the, you know, this, let's do this, this, this you know, then you have more of a, of, of a, you expand your mind now. You know exactly. what I mean? Exactly. And we're talking about a hundred K in 70. Yeah, or, exactly. or, you know, whatever it is. Um, so the type of money that was flowing was, yeah, it's a different thing. Yeah. <laughs> wow. 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 I would say that, you know, from a historic point of view, I, I, I see straight life as being a great, I have these things that I call snapshots um, within, in, regard, in, in regard to records. That, and they, it means a couple different things. For me, when I say a snapshot, it means something that I'm not necessarily going to be doing in the long run. You know, so my last record was a ballads record, The Arts of Intimacy, and it had George Cables and Peter Washington. Great rhythm section, great all-around thing. I had a lot of fun making it. It was a snapshot because this is not necessarily something that I was uh, going to be taking on the road for, you know, two, three years celebrating this record. I just wanted to do something that just framed me and framed where I was in terms of my, you know, balladry and all that at that point. I think that's what it was. But also, I think that what he did live really supported, uh, getting back to Freddie, I'm sorry. Um, I'm trying to search for the right word because, see, here's the thing is that Straight Life, out of everything that he did during that period live, he would always do Straight Life. He would always do that song. Um, but recording-wise, I think that possibly because there was a lot more variation between uh, First Light and, and uh, Red Clay, that those records get talked about a lot more. I think that that record straight life is a snapshot for freddie of 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 you know where he was and 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 it's interesting that you mentioned this they put out records a lot more often that's right <laughs> a lot of times people are like okay yeah i got another record coming out in another year i mean when i first signed with max jazz it was like one record every two years now I'm, i do one record every year but i mean back then i mean if you look at some of these record dates you know, when it was recorded versus when it was released, which is just a couple months later. And this goes all the way back to the 60s and the 50s. That Their release schedule was a whole lot different. That's right. Now, you know what I mean? So I think uh, it, a lot of the, 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 the vitality and, and, and how the record lasted was really uh, supported by how the musicians chose to, to celebrate not celebrate, but to to uh, where they place the music in their live sets. You know what I mean. So if if especially back then, because you had hits. You know what I mean. So 
it, it, you you could have a jazz hit. So if Red Clay was number one on the jazz charts forever, then I'm going to do Red Clay all the time. Right. <laughs> you know what I mean? Exactly. And so nobody's thinking about street life and, and all these, even though it's there. But if if this is my number one hit, that's 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 the number one rule. And, 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 but that's anything. Michael Jackson, people, you know, Michael was doing all these things with Teddy Riley and all. Of, do you remember the time? Everybody still want to hear, you know, human nature. Period. You know what I mean? Because that's the hit. So, I mean, you know, it's it's they they did things just like, similar to pop music and R&B. Whatever the hit was, that's what they were going to roll with all the time. That's right. That's right. Yeah. yeah. But I, I think that that uh, Straight Life is a, a record that everyone should check out if you are already familiar yeah. with Red Clay and and even some who may be in, into First Light or if you're really into that period of Freddie Hubbard, if you're into that period of uh, where jazz was going, where it was heading, what was happening at the top of the decade, the top of the 1970s. This record is completely indispensable. And Jeremy, I just want to thank you so much. This was an incredible conversation. Thank you for all of your insight and context in this conversation. It was just a pleasure to, to, to get with you on this. So thank you so much. And where can everybody find you? Where can they get this book? Where can they find you? Well, i tell you what, I've got a... Uh... My, my online shop set up. Uh, you can go, go, first of all, to find me, I'm on Instagram and Facebook mainly. I'm on Twitter too, but Facebook is, uh, you can go to my uh, my fan page, which is the Real Jeremy Pelt fan page. or uh, And you can go to my Instagram, which I always change with uh, with the release of my record. So now my Instagram name is Jeremy Pelt the Grio, um, which is, which would, phonetically look like Griot, <laughs> but it's yeah. uh the Jeremy Pelt the Griot, Jeremy Pelt the Griot. Um my online shop uh set up to uh accept orders uh uh from the CDs to the books to some sheet music. It would be Pelt Jazz. Now this is a long one, um, but it's Pelt Jazz dash publishing dot myshopify.com. If you don't remember it, I'm telling you, I'm plastering my social media with it all the time. So even if you're like, I don't know what that is, go find me on Facebook or Instagram and it's going to be there. It is there for you. The link is in the bio, as they say. Jeremy Pelt, it has been a pleasure. This is Milestones. I'm your host, Angelica Beener. We will see you next time. Milestones with Angelica Beener is a production of WBGO Studios. Theme music produced by Riley Glasper. Check out the rest of WBGO's podcast lineup at wbgo.org slash studios.